tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The Navy is preparing to unpack about a million gallons of fuel in the pipelines connected to the Red Hill facility. It's the first step in permanently draining the massive underground tanks at the military installation. This morning, we have Kathleen Hope, Deputy Environmental Health Director, in studio to talk about where we're at in the process. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so, you know, we've been hearing about this plan to uh, unpack the fuel, uh, but we, the military has been a little cagey when it comes to a date, uh, and you folks were reviewing their uh, their plans. So what's the latest? Okay. So let me explain what unpacking means. There are three pipelines. What we want them to do is drain the pipelines. It's like uh, a straw in a cup. So we want them to take it all out so that they can repair the pipelines to begin the process of defueling the tanks. So, um, so that's what that's what that's what we want them to do, and that's what unpacking is. Um, what we did do was they review. They sent us their unpacking plan. We reviewed that unpacking plan and gave them uh, some comments on it. Part of the con and. It's a conditional approval, so they cannot really unpack until they fulfill all the obligations in our, in our, um, in our comments. Uh, some of the comments that we ask is for a site visit to ensure that the um, that the um, drains and things have been sealed, so that if in case there is a there's a release that it doesn't go to our aquifer. We you know foremost is to protect the the aquifer. Um, we also ask them to ensure that they've uh, have um, extra personnel along the pathway to ensure that if there is a release, somewhat it will be detected in a timely fashion, and to produce um, some documents for us so that can, we can make sure that the um, plan is um, going to be implemented in a. Uh, properly and safe fan ma manner. And so you, you did uh, send them this list uh, about a week ago. Uh, have you been able to go out and do that site visit? We have. Um, last week we went out and did the site visit. Um, part of the uh, plan is that they need to um, properly ensure that they're ready for this uh, unpacking. The Department of Health, EPA, and the Navy has been uh, drilling uh, practicing drills um, for the worst case scenario uh, in in the event that there's a release. Okay, and uh, they just have yet to what uh, produce any documents just to show that right they've we've, done this work. Yeah, we've we've um, received some documents. We haven't received all of them. We anticipate that we should be receiving them shortly so that the unpacking can begin in. Uh, the next couple of weeks. And so how long is this process supposed to take? Yeah, so the process is, um, there's about a million gallons of fuel left in the tanks, I mean in the um, pipelines. Uh, so it's uh, to, to, to drain or unpack all of that, it's going to take approximately six days. Okay. Uh, and if something goes wrong, then obviously you're going to pause it and and and, uh, and and deal with the discharge. Yes. Well, well. If there's in the event of a release, we will pause it. We will um, remediate the release. In other words, clean up the release. Make sure that um, the release is um, taken care of, and then we can we can continue on. And as part of the drills that they've had leading up to this, I understand it's just making sure that. You know, all the people in the uh, public affairs offices are, you know, they've got phone numbers to everybody. Uh, and if they have to call, you know, the fire department or the emergency response folks, that, that those numbers work and everybody knows the drill. Exactly. Um, they've been practicing for, you know, they've been practicing for the last couple of months, both on tabletop, tabletop and in the field. I think they'll be ready if there's a there's a release. Okay, and then you know this weekend uh, marked, I guess, the year's anniversary since um, environmental groups, uh, you know, uh, discovered more information about what was actually happening uh, at Hotel Pier about a, a, a leak uh, in that area, and they are calling for more transparency and they want a seat at the table, whether it's at the you know. The task force level, uh, I know the, the new uh, 
military leader who just took charge of Admiral John Wade, you know, he says that they're talking about some other type of uh, forum so that there could be more community input. Uh, do you know where we're at with that at all? I, I don't know exactly where we're at with that. I know that the legislature um, two years ago uh, called for a FTAC, which is the Field Tank Advisory Commission, which is made up of um, local leaders and um, the public. It's an open meeting. Uh, we talk about things all Red Hill. Uh, the public is invited to attend those meetings. I'm encouraging um, the DOD and the Navy to um, be more open and transparent uh, with the public. We can um, have, they should, they should certainly go out and have meetings with the public regarding um, the defueling and, um, and unpacking of the pipelines. And the next meeting for this group is when? I believe the next FTAC meeting is in November. Okay. I don't have the exact date. So, so it's going to be after this depacking event. Yes. Uh, and I guess we'll get we'll get a follow up uh, there. But you know, th the community just wants, I guess, monthly updates. They just want to be kept in the loop. So, uh, they they I guess feel assured that our drinking water is not going to be threatened. Yeah, I I, I totally encourage um, the 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 Navy and DOD to reach out to the community to let them know what we're doing. They um, have said that they're, they're working towards transparency. This is a step towards that. Yeah, and we are coming up on the year anniversary when the fuel was found in the military's drinking water system and all those families had to leave, you know, um, as they were preparing for the holiday season. Uh, and they were held up in, uh, you know, hotels in Waikiki and, and elsewhere. Uh, so it you know, we're in this for the long haul. There's still a long journey before we close this facility down. Yeah, Catherine, you know, what keeps me up at night is really, it's the unpacking, the defueling, but also, um, for me, it's the health of our aquifer. We really need to remediate the aquifer and so, um, and not allow any more contamination into the aquifer because this aquifer is our primary aquifer and we, um, you know, it's, it's, it needs to last us for, for many generations. And, you know, I know there's concern about if it does get in there, you know, how do we clean it up? And, and we've seen the great lengths to which the military is, you know, flushing uh, in order to keep the system going and for those military families in, that, uh, in the housing projects. But um, anything else, you know, you want to add just about, about that process and where all that water's going? Yeah, so we're encouraging the Navy to... Um, to do um, to come up with a plan so that we can maybe uh, use some of that water to um, on on their properties to water the the golf courses the lawns things like that. We're also um, encouraging the Navy uh, to create more sentinel wells so that we can make sure that if there's if there is a plume and that plume is moving towards our drinking water that we know about it right away. And they are in the process of putting those wells in. They, uh, I believe so, yes. And, you know, uh, there was some concern because we did find uh, some evidence of pollution in one of our monitoring wells. The Board of Water Supply, um, you know, was concerned about that. And, and as far as we know, n nothing new to report on that end. Then. Nothing new to report. And then uh, the, the military is also dealing with a, a wastewater issue separate to the drinking water issue. Um, you folks have come out with a... A hefty fine, almost $9 million yes. uh, for the discharge into the harbor. Uh, has the military indicated they're going to appeal that? They have not. We have not heard that. Okay. All right. Well, we'll be watching thank, <laughs> and thank waiting you. to see uh, what happens. But thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. We have been talking with Kathleen Ho, uh, Deputy Environmental Health Director for the Hawaii Department of uh, Health. Uh, she was talking about the defueling or the unpacking process at Red Hill, which is about to uh, happen in the next week or two. Yes, we sing. Ola ikovai, ola ikovai. Water is life, water is life. Ola ikovai, ola ikovai. Water is life, water is life. 
This is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. We have an interview with ukulele virtuoso Taimani coming up later in the show. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we're going to test your knowledge of another well-renowned ukulele musician. The instrument itself has been synonymous with Hawaii since its introduction to our islands by Portuguese immigrants. In August of 1879, the Hawaiian Gazette reported those immigrants had been delighting the people with nightly street concerts. The instrument quickly became part of Hawaiian music with the support of King Kalakaua, who had it incorporated into performances at royal gatherings. Flash forward to the early 2000s when Jake Shimabukuro released his first solo album, which featured elements of jazz, funk, and flamenco, among other styles. He became internationally famous in 2006 when a video of him playing a rendition of a George Harrison song racked up millions of views on YouTube. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us what song that was? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right wins a reusable HBR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NairitHawaii.com. delving into our history when it comes to boats on the water. We recently featured Ikaika Hawaii, which is sending a Hawaii crew team to Boston this weekend for the head of Charles Regatta for the first time in 50 years. And yesterday, we tipped our hat to the Molokai Hoi, a long-distance paddling event which marked its 70th anniversary this weekend. The Kiwi Channel crossing has been on pause because of the pandemic, and now it's getting some pushback from some in the Molokai community over its large footprint. Today, we are reflecting on the strong showing of our female master paddlers in London this summer. We feature the race and the growing number of young competitors as hundreds from Hawaii made the trip overseas to Europe to compete in the International Va'a Federation World Sprints event. We talked to Vanessa Wise from Maui's Island Masters Club about the competition. Well, this event is put on every two years, and... It is in lieu of outrigger canoeing not being an Olympic sport. I believe you need 30 countries to participate in order for it to be an Olympic sport. And then it also has to be voted upon by the Olympic Committee. But every two years we have what's called the VAA World Sprints. It's run by the IVF, which is the International Federation of VAA Canoes. And the site where the competitions are held are voted on by the board of the IVF. And most of the uh, places that we've had our world sprints have been in the South Pacific. So we are on that side of the world, although it is now starting to travel to all parts of the world. And I say that because the last one we just had was in London. And the next one will be in Hawaii. And then after that, it's supposedly going to Paris, France. But for the most part, the competitions have been in Australia, New Zealand, Tahiti, Hawaii, of course, and quite a few other places. So it's been going on since the early, I think 79 might have been the first one, and that was actually in Los Angeles. Talk about this past competition that we just had in London this year. 
It was a great venue, I must say, first off. I was very impressed with Britain, and they put on a, a nice showing. And our contingency is quite large. I'd say short of 600 athletes go, and we did quite well. My hat's off to Tahiti. They tend to win every single time I've gone. Tahiti has won, but for some reason, they did not participate. Hawaii had one of the most wins in the gold medal department. So we had 12 gold medals, which was very impressive. And it was won by quite a few of the crews that are older. And one nice thing that they did this particular World Sprints was they included not only 70-year-old athletes, but 75- and 80-year-old athletes. And that was a novelty because usually 60s has been the highest. And now they've gone to 75s and 80s. And we do quite well when it comes to the older divisions, along with Canada. But it, it was ex- exciting. These are our senior paddlers, our, our masters, I These guess. These are our senior paddlers. But of the 12 gold medals, we had eight of them won by women, women's crews. And uh, most of those were older women's crews. And then the other, other ones were won by older men's crews um, off the island of Oahu. When it comes to winning for the younger ones, it's usually Tahiti and New Zealand. They seem to dominate there. But now that they're having a lot of the youth come, and when I say youth, I mean 16s and 18s, we're having a good showing. This was awesome to have so many paddlers from Hawaii travel over there. And I understand that, you know, there were some, what, 1,500 people that competed? I believe that's close to the number. Our contingency, I think, was like just short of 600. And some of that popularity is because the one prior to this was scheduled for Hilo. And because of the COVID, it had to be canceled. So a lot of these athletes have been prepping for this for four years. So they weren't going to let that go by without, you know, trying to get over there. And you do have to trial. You do have to compete just to get on the Hawaii team. So um, most of the events they take in the six-man canoes, they take six six teams. In the singles, they only take three. So that's still quite a few athletes. And so how does that work for the canoes? Well, the canoes all have to be made by the same builder. They, they just can't have any old canoe. It, it has to be legal. And the, and the rules that IVF have in place are very stringent. So they will have one builder and they will build um, at least 26 man canoes and, and the same with the, uh, the V1s, which are rudderless canoes. And, and so they ha- all have to be the same, so it's fair. When you folks competed in London, those canoes were all sent over there? <laughs> yes, they were. <laughs> quite an expense. Uh-huh. And then what happens um, What happens when we host in 2024? Well, I believe they're looking around for a builder, and I think they found one. And then after the event, sometimes to get back some of the money that the Hawaii Association that sponsors everything, they'll sell them to the, you know, the local club. I believe a lot of the European clubs bought up the canoes that went to London. It doesn't behoove us to buy a canoe that's way over in London. But I think now that outrigger canoeing is popular in Italy and France and Germany, you know, there's there's buyers for after the competition. Okay, so, so we don't have to worry about shipping at home. <laughs> no, we do not. No, they, they've already actually asked a lot of the Hawaii clubs if they'd be interested in buying one after the competition. And the competition isn't even for another two years, so... Wow. I so, believe my club was interested, one of the ones. So how does that work? So uh, whoever gets tapped to build, I mean, is that all going to be built in locally? Yeah, um, most of the time, although, the, you know, for London, uh, I believe the Tahitian builder won the bid. And so they have to just build the canoes and pay for the shipping. And I'm sure they make a nice profit on it. Yeah. So how do they it. make them? I mean, what are they made of? There's a mold. Fiberglass. Carbon. Uh, now they're all... I'm not really sure what the specs will be for uh, 2024. These ones were more on the ultralight. That's the term they use now. Then there's a mold. And so whoever is making the canoe has a mold. 
I'm told that for 2024, they may expect up to 3,000 paddlers. That's quite a bit. Well, the reason for that is because the competition is back in the South Pacific. And so it's a little bit easier for uh, the smaller countries like New Caledonia and Fiji and, and other ones, Samoa, to participate because it's closer than going to London. I see a lot of people coming to Hawaii. Hawaii is a good competitor, and so Tahiti will definitely be back. Okay, so Hilo's got to step it up. <laughs> yes, they do. They have, it's in, the, it's in Hilo Bay, and mm-hmm. a lot of the reasons uh, some of the competitions have been nice is because they've been followed by the Olympics or some other kind of world competition. So, you know, the venue is pretty high quality. Uh, Hilo's a different area. It's 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 Hawaii. It's, it's got its culture, and so the, there's a little bit of a trade-off. I don't see us creating a big Olympic stadium for outrigger canoeing, although it'd be nice. Um, but Hilo Bay is beautiful in itself, and so they'll they'll have to just pull it off. Just, they'll get it done. That was Vanessa Wise from Maui's Island Masters Club talking about the IVF World Sprints that Hawaii will host in 2024 in Hilo Bay. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, reopening the Doris Duke Theater with art house films from around the world, live performances, and more, reflecting Hawaii's cultures and communities. HonoluluMuseum.org slash theater. A tiny country bordering Russia, Latvia, is limiting imports of Russian fuels. That's made all fuels, including firewood and wood pellets, more expensive. It's three times more than last year. So people say they are adding layers of clothing, lowering thermostats, and still paying too much to stay warm. If you need heat, you have to buy it, so there's no choice. Latvia's big chill on the world. Beginning this afternoon at 1. reality check today. Honolulu Civil Beat is spotlighting a federal trial that is about to get underway this week. It involves a former labor union boss who was removed as head of the IBEW, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. Reporter Christina Jedra joins us today. Good morning. Hi, Catherine. Good to be here. Yes. So you got a chance to talk to Mr. Brian Ahokuelo. I did, yeah. And he's telling a very different story than the one that federal prosecutors are telling. Um, For those who don't remember, uh, Brian Hacuello is accused of conspiracy and embezzlement and money laundering related to his work as head of the local 1260. Um, Prosecutors essentially say that he, you know, used union funds for personal expenses and hired family members who also were able to enrich themselves. They went on international trips on the union's dime. Um, for reasons that the prosecutors say were not union-related and not necessary. Now, Brian Ahakuelo and his family are saying that all of that is not true, that everything, you know, was legitimate, um, and that, you know, everything he did, he did for the union. Now, uh, he also wrote a book. Uh, I I haven't read it, but I understand you did. (laughs) I did. I read it all last week uh, to prepare for writing this story, Um, and it, it... it kind of goes into detail about um, Brian Ahakuela's version of events. Um, you know, it describes him as really growing up in the union hall. His dad was, <clears throat> excuse me, the head of the same union. And um, he said that was really his life's mission and his passion. And he put everything into it in, in his telling and um, it, in his telling of events, um, he was actually a victim of a conspiracy. He says that the international officials um, colluded with local officials to oust him. That's what he believes. Well, I, I remember that day when uh, he was removed. Uh, you know, we ran down to the uh, offices downtown, and you know, there were the international 
uh, folks sitting around a table having a meeting. Uh, you know, they, they took over the office because of uh, suspected financial impropriety. Uh, and, you know, there, but there were other things, right? There, there was a, a accusation of ballot stuffing. Uh, right. So um, the International Union did put the local into a trusteeship in May 2016 um, f- about these alleged financial improprieties. Um, it came out later that some of the locals' employees rigged an election to raise union dues against the wishes of the members, um, and four people have pleaded guilty to their to their role in doing that. Um, Brian and um, I think one of his family members are accused in, in their own indictment of participating in that, but um, they've denied uh, helping that effort. Yeah, and that involved uh, raising the dues uh, for the members in Guam as well as here in Hawaii. And I think at the time, the, the Guam members were told, oh, don't worry, just vote for this thing. The Hawaii members will, will, will pay, not you. Right. Brian did admit to saying that to the Guam members, and indeed the Hawaii members' dues were increased, and the Guam members voted on it, um, but they never saw an increase. So tell us about this uh, trial that's coming up. Uh, they're just starting with the what the, the jury, picking a jury? Right, yep, that's where it begins. And then, um, you know, we'll have opening statements and they'll get to introduce all this evidence. It's expected to go on for several days uh, throughout this month. Um, and we'll really finally get to hear, you know, these two competing stories um, set up against each other and the jury will decide who they believe. Um, you know, during my interview, Ahakuelo sort of alluded to this idea that he's a, a, a victim of a conspiracy but didn't really give specific evidence. Um, he says it's all going to come out at trial, so we'll see how that goes. Um, but, you know, in general, the feds have a really good track record of winning their cases, so um, he knows he's taking a risk by going to trial and, and not pleading out. He says he's innocent, so... Um, it, it should be interesting, and we may see sort of the inner workings of uh, a Hawaii union that we don't usually get to see. You know, so often um, their operations are behind closed doors. Um, so hopefully we can learn something from this. Yeah, I'd be curious to see if any of those four uh, defendants who pleaded guilty to the charges of ballot stuffing, if um, they'll be testifying mm-hmm. in the trial. And see what they say? I think it's likely. Yeah, yeah, I think they will. They've agreed to help the prosecution. So we'll see how uh, Brian Hoakuelo is able to counter what they say. Okay, well, it's a long time in coming, this trial. And yeah, we'll see what the jury thinks. Thank you so much, Christina. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. Read her story online at civilbeat.org. HBR Sabrina Bowden has been combing through the charter questions on the general election ballot. She's been going county by county. Uh, today we are looking at what voters on Oahu uh, will be deciding next month. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So voters on Oahu will have four charter amendment questions on their ballot uh, this November. We're looking at four proposals that have to do with how city money and revenues are spent, as well as how to better position the city for better decision making in the future. So proposal number one on the ballot has to do with increasing revenues for the affordable housing fund. The fund is derived from real property tax revenues and currently gets one half of 1% of those revenues. Uh, Voters will be asked if that should be doubled. So that'd be 1% of property taxes will go into this fund. This pot of money can be used uh, for the city to purchase lands to help developers bring units or help developers bring units online. This amendment was clearly inspired by the ongoing housing crisis. Uh, Honolulu City Council Chair Tommy Waters says this proposal makes sense to sort of keep up with the demand for housing. Currently, we collect about seven to eight million dollars a year. This would double it to approximately $16 million a year. And walking door to door, meeting with folks, talking at 
various forums, affordable housing is one of the main issues facing our city. And to me, this is a perfect opportunity to raise money for affordable housing. And the second proposal looks at adding specific members to the city's planning commission for better for better representation. The proposal calls out four specific categories of expertise that the commission would be required to have, which includes somebody versed in Native Hawaiian practices, land use policy, construction, and environmental planning. Chair Waters says somebody with an environmental focus who can weigh in on issues that may have to do with shoreline setbacks is crucial to advising lawmakers. And it would be great to have someone who has experience with sea level rise and climate change making those types of recommendations to the council. And as you know, the Planning Commission typically will will opine on various resolutions or bills that the city council passes, make recommendations, make changes to the land use ordinance, and then it comes back to the council for further consideration. But um, we want a planning commission that is Akamai, that they are familiar with the issues out there. And the concern there is what they were uh, what previously weighted with oh. folks that were in the construction industry, development, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And we weren't having a sort of not fair discussions, but we weren't having more in-depth discussions about what different parties and different groups may need to see in certain developments or um, constructions. So that came out of that concern about mm-hmm. the Planning Commission. Yeah, um, and the third proposal would expand the uses of the city's Clean Water and Natural Lands Fund. So typically a nonprofit would apply to the city with a plan to purchase and preserve different parcels of land. Uh, the issue that the county was seeing is that these groups don't have the capital for ongoing maintenance and upkeep. Uh, Chair Waters described some instances where this Clean Water and Natural Land Fund has been used and where the money could potentially go if voters say yes to this proposal. The basic idea is to acquire land to preserve it and and keep it in its raw natural beauty you know in the back of Wailupe Valley for example a developer wanted to build houses on what otherwise was next to preservation land we're able to acquire that parcel and keep it in its natural form because of the clean water natural land fund there's another parcel in Aina Haina on the side of the mountain right below Wailaiiki that is the developer is trying to build, I believe, nine homes there, and a nonprofit came together and, and is trying to save it. But of course, these nonprofits don't have money, and they're able to access this clean water, natural land fund in order to purchase the property. And that final proposal is more of a housekeeping measure, um, but it's one that I think people don't really think about um, because it's about the Office of Council Services, um, which is an office that essentially assists the the council and city in legislative matters, offering analysis and research. The office has been around since the 70s, and all this proposal is really asking is if it should be codified into the city's charter, and it adds another detail into the office's job description. One of the main things that I like about this charter amendment is that it requires the Office of Council Services to update the revised ordinances of Hawaii twice a year. They haven't updated at least the online version of our revised ordinances since 2019, which is very, very troubling to me. Mm -hmm. You know, and anybody who goes online and tries to look up what the, the law is can't find that the most latest version of the law. So this would require the Office of Council Services to do that. It is more of a housekeeping, and quite honestly, I'm not sure it's actually even necessary. Um, But if the voters want to put this office into the charter, by all means. But if this one were to fail, I don't think it would be uh, devastating. It's kind of a head-scratcher to me. It's just like... (laughs) They haven't bothered to update, update the, chart. the charter online. It's like, whose mm-hmm. job is that? And yet we have to have a charter question on that. Interesting. Well, now we're going to have somebody who does it if we vote yes for this proposal. And then, uh, again, what about the education uh, of voters on these questions? How is that being handled? Um, Well, we can go to hawaiipublicradio.org. We have our voter guide that's already up. We also have a breakdown of each county's proposals and little explainers on what they actually mean. All right. Okay. Thank you very much. We've been talking with uh, HPR Sabrina Bowden. Again, uh, to check out our voter guide, head to hawaiipublicradio.org. 
Backyard Quiz. We asked you if you knew the name of the song that introduced the world to Jake Shimabukuro. He got his start on the ukulele after his mother gave him one when he was four years old. He quickly took an interest in it, playing it for hours at a time. His mother was his first teacher, but he later took lessons for several years at Roy Sakuma Studios in Kaimuki. Shimabukuro initially gained local attention in the late 1990s as a member of the popular music group Pure Heart and for his fast and complex finger work. In 2002, Shimabukuro released his first solo album, but it wasn't until 2006 that he gained the rest of the world's attention. A video of him playing a rendition of George Harrison's song was uploaded to YouTube, unbeknownst to him, and it became one of the site's first viral videos. The name of that song, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, which is the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. As of today, that video has racked up nearly 18 million views. And our BYQ winner today, Naomi from the Big Island. That's our quiz today. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at mobi.com. My name is Peter Rossig, and I've been a supporter of Hawaii Public Radio since before there was Hawaii Public Radio. Back in the late 1970s, I was a reporter at the Honolulu Advertiser, and I heard about this group of brave souls who were trying to form a public radio station. So I convinced the editor that we should editorialize and favor, you know, encourage people to support this idea. Donate today to become a member at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the new Hawaii Island Community Health Center, promoting lifelong health and wellness through health care, open to all. Learn more at hicommunityhealthcenter.org. Ukulele virtuoso Taimani Gardner picked up her first ukulele at age five. She started performing at age seven and was discovered by Don Ho on the streets of Waikiki at 13. She is now in her 30s and has recorded five records since 2005, and she's graced stages all over the world. She's just released her newest album, Hava Ike, which is autobiographical and steeped in her Polynesian ancestry. Taimani recently sat down with the conversation's Lillian Song to talk about the album. Hawaii is very well known in all of Polynesia. It's where Polynesians originated from, spiritually and also like where we come from. I really connect with like mythology, whether it's Greek mythology or, or any type of mythologies. So this one I really focused on like Polynesian mythology, things that I enjoy about that. But also like where do I come from? My mom, you know, she passed 2018. So like where do I come from? You know, so like my spiritual side. And that was kind of like the journey. It's about a girl named Maluhia. So this one actually has a full story, which I plan on creating on the stage. Who is she? And it's finding her inner strength and finding her own mana as she goes through Hawaii, this special island where the gods and goddesses live, and talking with them and trying to find herself. So that's kind of what this album is about. Okay. But it's a, it's a spiritual place where Polynesians come from mm -hmm. and go after they pass. So Hawaii is about my Polynesian roots, was about my mom. She was a singer and she was in the Miss Universe pageant. She's so beautiful. She was a dancer, born and raised in Apia, Western Samoa. So my Samoan side is very musical. You know, they had a whole band there that would tour actually in Samoa called the Miller Band. So she was the singer. And so it was really more of like, how do I connect with my Polynesian side? 
my Samoan side. And so I found what connected with me. So you're going to hear some like Tahitian ukulele. You're going to hear some Samoan lyrics. You're going to hear some Hawaiian lyrics, some Tahitian, uh, some Samoan fire knife dancing. So I just really put in the things that I connected with and wrote on top of that, or I added those instruments later. So with this one, you're saying it took four years to yes. complete, and we're actually talking with you right now to help celebrate the happy news of your Ooh. newest album. <laughs> How about you, Congratulations. Thank you. What was your calendar like? <clears throat> A lot has happened for touring this year. Started off with Glastonbury in the UK. You know, it was just so funny. It's like COVID, nothing for two years. And then like, hey, do you want to play at Glastonbury? I'm like, okay, let's just do it. Let's just start off with a bang. So that was really fun. A great experience. Nice to be back in like the UK and see what's going on over there. That was the first tour. It was about two weeks. I did a little like mini tour in England, came home, and then I did a month long tour in California, West Coast, had like a little break. And then I did East Coast. Recently, I came back August 20th, 22nd. And then right after that, we had the release a month later of the new album, Hawaii. <laughs> yes. Wow, Taimani, you're just like the Energizer Bunny. You know. How, how do you keep it up? Oh, so like I like to work out <laughs> naturally. It gives you a lot of energy. And then I have a manager, Mark Tyrone. He's I try and keep up with him because he's doing so many different, you know, ideas. And so he just keeps me going. You know, we work really well together. So he's just like this and then this. And then I've got a signature ukulele coming out before Christmas. So I'm just doing it all while I can. You know, it's just so crazy how you did nothing for a while. And so now you're just like, I want to do everything again. Today, you have such a large presence online, over 207,000 subscribers alone on YouTube. One of your first videos was your Mission Impossible James Bond Tico Tico medley that you filmed at the Ong King Arts Center. Wow, that was a decade ago, back wow. in 2012. But on that one, you had over 3 million views. Yeah. <laughs> and wow, seeing you starting out, you know, just with your youthful energy, but there's still so much more that you are gaining, learning mm. along the road. I also saw your 2017 video from your concert at Millennium Stage, Kennedy Center. Mm -hmm. Then in three years' time, you're going to be performing at South by Southwest. Mm -hmm. Bob Boylan mm -hmm. of Tiny Desk Concert fame. He yes. sees you there and then gives you this invite. Yes. That was a huge deal, too. Just because, like... First Hawaii artist on NPR's tiny desk, you know, so I really wanted to make Hawaii proud and show what the ukulele can do. It was fun. That was also in Washington, D.C. and just fresh off of the South by Southwest meeting him and knowing all about the tiny desk. It really was just an honor to be there. And, and I had a Hawaiian dancer come up um, during my set, too. So I just wanted to like really share the culture as much as I could. That was actually, I think, the last tour before COVID. Yeah, wow, the timing on that. Yes. We've been talking about you, but mm. why don't you orally mm -hmm. show us that other side that you're so known for? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Well, you guys, I brought my ukulele. <laughs> uh, this is actually my new baby. I got it a, a month ago. So I'm just breaking her in. And she sounds great. Okay. I'm going to play something maybe off of the the new album just to get us into the feel. This one's called Lady Bird. I was walking in Lady Bird Grove and this melody came upon me. So it's a fun little bossa nova thing. So I hope you guys enjoy a little snippet of Lady Bird. Thank you. 
that was just a little snippet. <laughs> just a touch. Just a touch. You have mm-hmm. such a such a way with the ukulele. It's like it's just a part of you, an extension in a sense, because you've just always had an ukulele since age five. Yes. And it's amazing what you can do, the speeds you can accelerate to. Mm-hmm. Do you call that your pyrotechnic oh. technique? <laughs> what, what do you call that when you go just bam on straight, like oh. zero to 100? Um, I like to call it shredding. My boyfriend calls it jamming. <laughs> he's a local guy, so he's like, holy jam, yeah? I'm like, yes. Yeah. And right now, so looking at your travel schedule, though, your world tour, it's still continuing. You kicked off back in April in Waimea, Hawaii? Oh, yes, Kahilu. I did Kahilu Theater. That was, I guess, the warm-up to Glastonbury. So I did that. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's just been a whirlwind, you know. It's been a lot. I'm doing one more tour next month. Um, this one's just a small one. It's all in California for two weeks. And then in the middle of it, I'm flying back for Halabaloo Festival. So Halabaloo, shout out. They're doing it in Chinatown again, October 29th. I think that's my only Hawaii gig right now on the books okay. is that one. So I'm doing that and then flying back you know, to Grass Valley and finishing up my tour. And then besides that, I'm going to be here in Hawaii. I'm going to start playing gigs. And I've got a new signature ukulele that's going to be coming out right before Christmas, too. So How did that come about? Uh, my main baby is Kamaka, Kamaka Hawaii. They just have always taken really good care of me, you know, since I was five. So when I'm performing or touring professionally, I play my kamakas. And then sometimes I play other ukuleles that are just really good luthiers. I found Enya ukulele, and I just was very impressed by the inlays and the decorative stuff. Their ukuleles were really beautiful. They're Chinese company. Their stuff is really beautiful. And so I just reached out and be like, hey, you know, would you be interested in doing something together? I'm trying to create an ukulele that's like affordable, approachable for beginner ukuleles and then for more advanced players, something that's easy to travel with. Because like Kamaka, amazing, absolutely love. But like travel, I would not want to take this to the beach. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I want something that's like a little bit more easier to take to the beach or to the forest. So I connected with Enya and we just created this me, like a great representation of me. It's a five string ukulele. That's my main thing. And it's a thin body. So very easy to travel with. It has like an inlay of the moon in white abalone. So there's and it's black. (laughs) That's me. I'm Gothic Polynesia. That's what I call myself, Gothic Polynesia. So we created this affordable ukulele that I'm very excited to be sharing. Yeah, Christmas season. Right. And then Mm. I think I saw a video online of you in front of the pyramids with you and your uk. Yes. But there was no backstory. There was was no explanation. (laughs) So I was like, okay. Well, since I'm going to meet you, I was like, I want to to just find out what were you doing? You're such a global citizen. Your music has allowed you to travel. You were in the UK. Mm -hmm. When and where were you by the pyramids? I was gigging in Israel, actually. And I, yep, I did. They asked me to play in Israel. It was beautiful, amazing. Um, And so I was, it was during my birthday as well. So I was like, I'm so close. I've always wanted to go to Egypt and check out the pyramids. And it was a two hour flight. So I was like, I'm going. So I was able to uh, spend my, my, I think it was my 30th birthday there um, at the pyramids. So playing in front of them was was really fun. But like you said, it's amazing what the ukulele can do. And it's really provided this really special life of playing all over the world and like being inspired by other cultures, which adds more to my music, more depth. And it's just really from working hard and wanting to I guess having the confidence as an artist of just sharing yourself. Mm. Yeah. Final thoughts before, you know, what would what else would you like to share with our audience before we say goodbye? Mm, I just want to say thank you for supporting me through the years as well as HBR, uh, the conversation. It's so nice to be able to get back into the saddle and support each other and support the art. So um, I hope you guys enjoy the new album. It really is very, very special and close to my heart. And I hope you feel groovy when you listen to it. So thank you very much. And it was a pleasure being here again. 
That was ukulele virtuoso Taimani Gardner in our studios with HBR's Lillian Song. Her new album, Habaiki, is out now, and you can see her live at Hullabaloo in Chinatown, October 29th. We'll share pictures and links on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. And now, here's Taimani with Bora Bora Sunset. show for today. Tomorrow, we kick off our first day of our membership drive. We plan to hear from a Hawaii doctor who traveled to Ukraine earlier this summer. Share your comments about the situation in Ukraine by calling our talkback line, 792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.